0: Welcome to Vernacular Verbose, Jethro Tull Podcast. My name's Joey Vetter. My
1: name's Eugene Manco.
0: Today we're taking a look at Roots to Branches, released in 1995. If you're a fan of the podcast and are feeling generous, you can always support us on Ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash verbose. Any donations will go right back into the production of the podcast by helping us cover our editing costs. Again, that's ko-fi.com slash vernacularverbose. If you haven't heard already, we'll be doing our first official live stream on January 29th on YouTube. Eugene and I will be listening to the new Tull album, The Zelot Gene, for the very first time in full together, and we'll be giving our immediate reactions and impressions as we listen. If you're interested, you can tune in to the live stream and share that experience with us of listening to the first original new Tull album in 20-some-odd years together, as we all kind of listen in for the first time and give our comments. If you're interested in that, you can find on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you can find a post or link on there, which will take you to the YouTube page for the stream where you can set a reminder for when we go live. In terms of time zones, we'll be going live in the afternoon in the US on the 29th and in the evening in the UK. Please make sure to check the information on our social media for the exact time in your time zone. So, Roots to Branches, this is one that Eugene, you and I were kind of talking about ahead of time that we're both pretty excited to be talking about this one. Oh, yeah. So, I think this one this one actually has quite a legacy, this album, which is kind of interesting for a Toll album that came out in the mid-90s, you know, there's not a lot of later Toll albums you can say that about. Mm-hmm. I think that this one has kind of a reputation among a lot of fans as being like the best Tull album in a long time. That's often something that I hear about this album, that I see people saying that they think this is one of the best Tull albums since the 70s or the early 80s or whatever.
1: Well, you would hear that from me, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, I, as I was researching uh, some of the songs on this album, because I was slightly confused by some of the lyrics and I wanted to see if other people have anything to say about them. Mm-hmm. I saw people just laying into this album, huh. like quite harsh criticism about some songs, and w- which I fully disagreed with. But <laughs> that's par for the course. People could disagree with us, as it were. Uh, so, yeah, I have I have heard also people say that that they really like this album, but not in much detail, hmm. and. Just looking at what uh, people think of some of the songs, I still don't know what people think about it, really. Yeah. Just what they rank it. Some of them rank it high. Some of them don't rank it high enough in my opinion, but yeah. There is some consensus about it, but there also is lack of information, lack of of feedback in the fan community, I feel.
0: Yeah, I do agree with that. I think this is one album that sticks out to me, if for no other reason, just that I think it's really different from the last couple of albums that preceded it. So, I think I, we've mentioned this a bit in our last two episodes, but as we've listened to these albums, and I've kind of become more familiar with, you know, the Rock Islands and the Catfish Risings of the discography and that kind of thing, it's kind of put it more in perspective for me where that side of the discography seems to me more as, you know, a phase in time or an era of the band's history. And to me, mm-hmm. Roots to Branches is kind of, it means it's really coming out of that, it's leaving that old dad rock or whatever you want to call it, uh, era behind Intel. And in a way it's, it's both getting to something new with kind of the whole Eastern Arabic influenced music and that kind of thing. But to me, it's also kind of returning to what you might call, uh, you know, natural toll or normal tull or whatever you want to call it. It's kind of a, um, a fresh start, new beginning for toll, even, you know, 30 years after their career had started. It
1: does feel like that to me. What's, what would you say was natural tall or normal tall? What is, what is more natural or normal on this album that you think compared to the late 80s albums?
0: To me, a lot of it just has to do with Ian kind of leaving behind his whole persona of kind of like the rugged, uh, you know, high, highwayman, mm-hmm. which is kind of what I felt he was adopting on a lot of the past two or three albums. And, uh, you know, I can't knock what Ian wants to write about. Like, obviously, he's his own person. He'll write about whatever he wants to write about. That's fine. But to me, it it, it always felt like a persona that was kind of forced. And it may just be because, Mm -hmm. you know, there was already 20, 25 some odd years of material before that, where that kind of persona wasn't really there, in my opinion. And uh, so to this, it kind of feels more like reverting to the mean of, you know, progressive influenced music, that's more in the wheelhouse mm-hmm. of what Tull, what is more familiar, I think, for a Tall fan to hear, in my
1: opinion. I think Ian has always had personas. Yeah. Like, all, all the albums have been written from the perspective of one persona or another. So it, it may well be just adopting a new one, adopting a, yet another different persona that, that is more in tune with what we think of as Tall.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things that people often, the ways that people describe this album, you know, when I hear people talking about this album or when I see critics who have written blurbs about this mm-hmm. album or something, the thing they usually latch on to is the whole Eastern Arabic music thing that I just mentioned. So a lot of, like, I see this labeled as kind of like the world music album or that kind of thing. And I don't really agree with that that mm-hmm. much. Like, obviously, I see where it comes from. Like, there, there's undeniably... You know, quote-unquote world music influences on quite a few of these songs, I think, especially in the first half. But I don't really know if I would say that it's strong enough to like characterize the entire album through that lens, because I think there's a lot of other tracks on this album which uh, don't really adhere to that style. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think, well, it doesn't strike me as, uh, you know, mindless Orientalism, what mm-hmm. they're doing here. Yeah. Uh, they are using modes and melodic you could almost say melodic cliches of music that we think of as oriental but they are not trying to picture an oriental scene by by the means of that music some of the lyrics also kind of refer to pictures that ian had seen in india or middle east pers- possibly but still it doesn't strike me as stylized music as it were
0: yeah i agree with that i, I think it doesn't come off as Uh, inauthentic Mm -hmm. I think it sounds like they really cared about that style of music and they actually did their due diligence on researching it and not just doing a pastiche of it or you know however you want to call it
1: yeah and they're not even using a style of music they're using modes Mm -hmm. uh, which are like major key and the minor key are also modes and the two very prominent modes they're using are Phrygian which is like minor but it's got that half step of the root note the motion in half steps, which you hear on many of the songs, will be that. Or Phrygian Dominant, which is also, which is a pop- popular East- Eastern motif that you will hear in tunes like Mizirlu, mm-hmm. which is a Greek song, actually, but hey, Greek music also uses a lot of melodic modes like that. And they're making use of these melodic devices and applying them to their own music. So, they are not copying other people's music or other people's styles, what it feels like to me.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: So, you haven't listened to this album in how long?
0: I haven't listened to the full album in a while. I I would, at least a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Um, But that being said, I I was kind of familiar with this. I was familiar with most of it coming into it just because. Not really because I had the album as a kid or anything specific, but I just had listened to a decent amount of it on YouTube and stuff growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's, I mean, I would agree that this is the best Tull album since the mid 80s is what I would say. And actually, I will keep this uh, a surprise so people will listen further in the episode. But there is one song on this album that I actually might say is one of the best Tull songs since the 70s. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: I'm very excited to hear that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I did have this album as a kid. I think I mentioned it on, on the podcast several times. So I'll just give a short recapitulation of that. Uh, my dad brought a cassette from one of his business trips. I think it was like 95 the year that, uh, that the album came out and we listened to it. We loved it. It was the first cassette in my life that had the fold out lyric insert. Mm -hmm. and it was glorious it was something i had never seen up until then and i absolutely loved it i read it i took it out i don't know how many times the last song another Harris bar was printed on the side of the insert on the side that goes into the cassette like that's folded and had it had perforations so i would try to be real careful with that but of course over time it started falling apart Mm. Yeah, I I loved that cassette. I don't remember whether I was sup- not supposed to take it to school in my Walkman <laughs> or whether just I thought it would better be that I didn't but I did. <laughs> and I have some memories listening to it like on the bus on the way home from school.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's really unusual to like I mean, at least just in my experience, because most of the the good, like, childhood memories I had with Tull music was, like, older Tull, like, Thick as a Brick and Song from the Wood and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So it's really interesting for me to, like, hear of somebody else's experience where really modern Tull, you know, relatively speaking, modern Tull was, uh, was, like, a really strong, nostalgic childhood thing yeah
1: and as we're as, as we've been recording this podcast i i'm trying not to listen ahead mm-hmm. as much as i possibly can right so so that every album experience is well somewhat fresher and so i put off listening to it i didn't re-listen since at least since at least the spring and i think Possibly just coming from Crest Rock Island and Catfish Rising and being immersed in that era and coming back to this album, it feels like this was one of the most emotional album really since the beginning of the podcast, since Passion Play, possibly. Of course, it's, it doesn't really depend just on the album or how much I love a given album. It also depends on you know the mood, the time of day, the situation and so on. But yeah... When I f- first sat down to listen to it without stopping, without stopping to write notes, I just wrote a couple
0: lines. It
1: was fantastic. <laughs> Had to wipe tears a few times.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely a breath of fresh air for me it really kind of felt like coming out of somewhere less pretty and less uh <laughs> smooth that's kind of what it felt like to me was it It felt like kind of just a breath of fresh musical air is what it felt like to me yeah i, I can't
1: imagine how what it was like for people who had been following tell up until then yeah and then they disappeared for like four years yeah, the context came of back with this.
0: the context of how this happened is a bit interesting, I guess, and I don't know a lot about you know the behind the scenes of like how this album was put together or anything, but I do know that you know the years 1993, 94 were really big years for Tull because that's when they went on the 25th anniversary tour, mm-hmm. uh, which was a really huge tour. It was like one of the biggest tour itineraries I think the band had ever done. So and there was a lot of focus around that anniversary event. There were lots of compilations and reissues and that kind of thing that came out around the same time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, in a way, I don't know. it. I feel like if you watch footage of the band from that time, from kind of 93, 94, Roots to Branches, in a way, feels like a kind of a natural byproduct, mm-hmm. just because, I don't know what other way to put this, but Tola at that time were very mid-90s, <laughs> and the entire, you know, the 90s had its own aesthetic and its own style, and I think, you know, anybody who was a kid who was raised in the 90s, and yes, I was actually raised in the 90s, part of the 90s. I think they kind of understand what that aesthetic was like. And uh this album has a lot of that aesthetic on it both for better and for worse in my opinion. I think you can kind of hear that time period uh on the album.
1: Yeah, that's true. The keyboard sounds and to me, I think the drums sound like the 90s. Yeah, I agree. The rest probably not the rest could be on uh, on other tall tel- albums just yeah. as well but mm-hmm. i think the drum sound the drum sounds and some of the keyboards definitely have that
0: mm-hmm. So Toll at this time, in terms of the member lineup, they were kind of becoming a settled band again, or they were soon to become mm-hmm. a settled band with like a proper a proper member for each instrument and that kind of thing, which they hadn't really been for a while. And uh, the lineup at this time on this album was Ian Anderson on flute vocals, acoustic guitar, Martin Barr on electric guitar. Dave Pegg was officially on bass, although he actually only played on three tracks on this album. And uh, the rest was by Steve Bailey, who is an American session musician. Uh, Andrew Giddings was now the official member on keyboards. And then, of course, Don Perry on drums.
1: It's interesting uh, because if there's no mistake uh, in, in the credits, then no one is credited for playing bass on track four, This Free Will. Which, I don't know whether that's Ian playing or someone else, but they're definitely isn't I, I checked discogs i checked i think several issues and there isn't a credit for bass on track four which felt surprising to me because there's a couple bass moments in that specific song that kind of took me took me by surprise and i thought hey what's going on
0: with the bass there it's quite neat yeah i noticed that too it was just when i was looking at the you know the track liner notes that kind of uh, popped out at me like, wait, that doesn't add mm-hmm. up <laughs> with mm-hmm. all the different track listings for the bass players. So, I don't know. It doesn't sound like keyboard bass, does it? Is it Andrew Giddings again?
1: Mm, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Does it doesn't? It sounds sounds like like a bass guitar. Track listing wise, also should be noting that I'm used to the track listing on the cassette, and the cassette swapped Valley with wounded old and treacherous and as i was uh, listening to the album back i actually put the tracks in in that order to to have the cassette experience because i listened to that so much that i'm anticipating these songs in these places and not not the other way around so i don't know i gave it a listen in, in the proper order again yesterday I'm, I'm not sure which track listing i think works better it might be the cassette
0: <laughs> yeah i never even knew that the cassette had a different track listing until you mentioned it to me yeah it's just to save space
1: it, it gives a better split between b- between sides mm-hmm. so don't have to re- rewind really
0: so i remember you mentioning that the cover art for this album is one of your favorites in the whole discography oh yeah
1: totally i i really love it hands down one of the best tall covers uh it really really depends on how well it is printed though, because I've seen different, well, online, I th- I saw different r- reproductions of that. And we had like a bootleg CD of that as well, which wasn't printed w- very well. That little noisy background that the image sits on, it needs to be quite deep and quite crisp at the same time it it shouldn't be too light because when it's too light it becomes too noisy and it's like the image is sitting on a on tv static or something Mm -hmm. but when it when it's printed well with with good color reproduction and actually becomes a deeper color and you can see the little specks when you when you focus on it then it works really well what do you think about this cover
0: so i don't want to be labeled a heretic or anything (laughs) But uh, I don't think I like it as much as you do. Mm-hmm. I think the concept of it is really cool. I like the concept of, you know, I mean, you have like that center thing with... Um, if, you, if you pay attention to the details of the kind of the ring that goes around it, it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all different kinds of, uh, you know, things that represent both nature and, you know, man-made structures yeah. and that kind of thing. And I think that's cool. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with the concept of it. I just think aesthetically, it uh, it's probably the single part of the album that leans too much into the the mid-90s aesthetic
2: uh-huh.
0: which is not you know it's nobody's fault of course it's just that's what happens to things as they age with time but i think it's for me it's kind of when i look at it it immediately uh, looks to me like it was kind of made in uh the thing you used to do on microsoft paint where you could make like 3d like words and stuff that everybody thought was cool in like middle school <laughs> that's uh-huh. kind of what like it looks word, like to me
1: like word art
0: word art yeah that's it uh-huh that's kind of what it reminds me of.
1: Yeah, it's clearly digital because yeah. it's got these gradients. But again, I think the gradients work nicely. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the color balance of it. I like the overall overall impression that it gives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I like this cover. I, I think not, it, mu- not as much of a fan of the typeface.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was going to point but, that out too. Mm-hmm. I think it does signal kind of like a new style for the band though i think it even though like i don't know mm-hmm. design wise it's made i mean it's sort of similar to catfish rising in terms of having that big black background with the thing in the center of the gradient thing but mm-hmm. uh i think it you know it does kind of signal something new and different for the band at the time
1: yeah 95 was a good year for progressive rock there wasn't much progressive rock uh being played at, at that time but roots to branches and Thrack by king crimson were both brilliant albums in my opinion I, I really love track it's got one of my absolutely favorite king crimson songs ever one time and to people who had haven't heard it just go and listen to it <laughs> after you've done with with our episode track one roots to
0: branches
2: words get written words get twisted
0: So right off the bat, I know I say that every time, but right off the bat, a lot of effort put into uh, the opening of this track is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, They clearly spent a lot of time trying to kind of get this like hazy opening. And uh, it's very interesting, like the different kinds of percussion, which is kind of all over this album, not just on this song. Mm -hmm. But uh, a lot of different percussion they brought in just to use on this intro.
2: -hmm
1: yeah and it, it signifies straight away what kind of what kind of music we're going to be hearing on the album because um, the opening riff is based around the Phrygian mode so we're shown very clearly where the album will be taking us this this song is well compared to the tall albums we've been listening to lately and and even earlier ones, is a little unusual because it's not a high-energy first track like we've been hearing most of the time since, I don't know, Stormwatch. It actually reminds me a little bit of Beastie, Mm. which has that same slow and dark and slightly foreboding mood which it sets. And we know, like, when they do that on Broadsword, uh, it takes some time to get to a higher-energy track. The exact same thing is happening here. This is a great song. Th- there's a brilliant moment in uh, Martin's guitar solo when he's playing what appears to be a very straightforward run of just groups of four nod- notes just climbing up but don't switches to 6/8 underneath that. Uh while the the entire track is in 4/4 but in that moment don't don't switches to 6/8 and it gives a completely different polyrhythmic feel to that little moment and then they just go play a little bit of three
0: yeah i I was going to mention that moment because so this is the first time i've heard this entire song from front to back in a while and so a lot of the times when uh when i are going back to songs that i haven't heard front to back i often forget what the bridge was like and so this was the first time i've heard the bridge in a while and uh I forgot how progressive it was. And then, like you said, they kind of go into that like random jazz passage, which is kind of funny.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Thematically, I think that this song is interesting, because Ian put out Divinities in the same year. And that album, in its concept, it was, of course, completely instrumental but the concept was evident from from the cover art and the track names it was ecumenical it was like bringing together the views from different religions and l- looking at them and l- looking at what's beautiful in nature and in man-made things through that lens and this is kind of a different view of the same i think in, in the lyrics we were exploring a god that has to be different for everyone while everyone is spinning their own story and their own power fantasy, probably. I mean, that line, I hope the old man's got his face on. He, he'd better be some quick change artist, quick change artist, as in a god who has to be a different god for everyone, for every religion, and for mm-hmm. every priest, and for every person who's praying. This song has a hint of the songwriting approach that I've come to notice in later Ian Anderson songs. And I will be coming back to it a lot in uh, I think on on dot com and if we're going to talk about later albums as well when he leans too much into it it tends to I probably tend to dislike it but not here it's what i call kaleidoscopic writing it's when he's utilizing like a flurry of images that aren't really connected to each other it's kind of cinematic and kind of kaleidoscopic and kind of like flicking through a stack of photographs or different images, like looking in different directions. In this song, the images are connected by conclusions and commentary, and this is what makes it work. Ian comments on what he's seeing, but also the overall trick in this song is to kind of make it cryptic. So what I mean is like small phrases, short phrases, in wet and windy priest halls, grand and vast cathedrals, high on lofty minarets or in the temples of doom listing images, listing various pictures. But the cryptic effect that it gives to this song, it works very well with its idea because the song is about messages. The messages that are understood and misunderstood. Words get written, words get twisted. Old meanings move in the drift of time. So uh, the song in itself being a cryptic message is a really, really effective literary device, I should say.
0: the whole thing about kaleidoscopic writing one of the immediate examples that it makes me think of if i'm thinking of the right thing you are on uh homo erraticus, i remember there being one song where he kind of goes into a passage of just kind of random non-associated words yeah and it's it's the one that has like facebook and the walking dead in it yeah yeah uh, Uh, it's
1: enter the uninvited Mm -hmm. yeah exactly this is exactly what i mean
0: When, when it comes to ian's vocals not on this song not just on this song but on this whole album to me, this is kind of the first album where it sounds like he's trying to hit some notes that are out of his range. What do you think?
1: Uh-huh. I don't get that, that impression a lot. I think it feels on this album that he's, he's not straining himself too much. Mm. Maybe I'm not noticing it. Maybe I'm just too used to hearing it. And when I first heard it, I wasn't really thinking about how he sounded or what was going on with his voice.
0: I do think that just from like a neutral perspective, this is the first, the most recent Tull album where his voice sounds like his voice today, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, the Ian Anderson vocals on Thick as a Brick 2 and Homo erraticus, to me they kind of sound uh, similar to the same voice that you hear on Roots to Branches. Mm-hmm. And to me it's kind of the, uh, the earliest example of that like modern, you know, 21st century Ian Anderson mm-hmm. voice. Because I remember when I was a kid, uh, when I first heard Thick as a Brick, the CD, like the actual album for the first time, I couldn't believe that that was the same guy who I had been hearing on like YouTube videos and live stuff and all that kind of thing. Cause mm. it, it, He sounds so different on so many different records. And I think this is kind of where you start to hear the Ian that we know today in the 21st century.
1: Yeah, if you examine the, if you examine the keys that the songs are written in, you just pro- progressively notice them getting lower and lower and lower. Hmm. Because that's where his comfort zone lies these days. And on Rooster Branches, there are a lot of songs written in C which is a little bit unprecedented for Tal. We've been all around, all over G minor, you know, on earlier albums. And this is this is the, a fifth down, a lot of the songs. There is a song in G minor here, actually. But, of course, he doesn't get too high vocal-wise in, mm. in that.
0: So, musically, you probably know more about this than I do, but I seem to remember reading and hearing that he switched to a different kind of flute on some of these songs, Um, I think. Yeah,
1: yeah, this one is a a small bamboo flute. Yeah, that's what I thought. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm not knowledgeable enough about flutes to really notice a huge (laughs) difference in the sound, but I I remember hearing that uh, he was playing more bamboo flutes and smaller flutes around this time. Yeah,
1: I think it sounds brilliant here. I really like it.
0: And the only other thing I had musically on this one was just the drum part for this one, actually, it sounds very Clive Bunker-ish to me. Uh, I've de- kind of described in the past how Clive Bunker's parts to me they're very much like octopus drum parts where there's uh-huh. you know uh, one hand is kind of all over the kid on different toms and that kind of thing and it feels to me like uh-huh. Doan is kind of doing that here so it I don't know I, I don't know if it was intentional but you know it sounded like to me a, a callback to Clive Bunker huh. almost
1: yeah it could be there are a few interesting drum parts in this one
0: yeah I think a
1: few songs where I think Doan is doing well we don't we still don't know which things are characteristic for Doan or not at this point, do we? Yeah.
0: One thing I have caught on to, so our last album on Catfish Rising, I mentioned the very beginning fill of the album, which sounded uh-huh. a lot to me like a Lars Ulrich Metallica fill. I've noticed quite a lot uh-huh. of those on this album. He likes doing those. Just kind of the big, uh-huh. like, I don't know how to, how I'd explain them, but just um, lots of full Tom fills going back and forth uh-huh. from the snare of the toms.
1: Yeah and martin i think stopped playing so many pinch harmonics so there are a few even even in this song i think but he doesn't lean into them so it becomes more tasteful it becomes just just another color mm-hmm. so i think he kind of inco- finally incorporated them into his own style yeah i think he had enough of them in every solo he played in the, during the 80s track 2 rare and precious chain
2: rare and precious chain do i have to tell you tell you once again
1: like i said uh, when TALs start on a low energy track like roots to branches uh, they take the time to get to a to a higher energy song and this one this is the transitional one in terms of mood on the album it develops what's been set by the title track again there's a lot of a lot of phrygian on this song you you can hear it in the main melody and in the main melody you have the phrygian dominant which which has that large large jump uh, be- between notes in, in one of the places but it's got phrygian dominant and it's got regular phrygian in choruses across different key centers so it's it's a really progressive approach to melodic modes unlike just choosing one and sticking to it throughout the entire songs so it moves around quite a bit um, there's a brilliant I feel this song is very centered on percussion it feels like yeah and I really like how the acoustic guitar rhythm works with what the drums are playing and what the percussion adds to it and there's also electric guitar that adds to the percussiveness i think there's with the use of delay on like palm muted notes and i think the sound of this song is just even more unusual than what we've heard on the title song and even more slightly unexpected and i think quite brilliantly put together in terms of in terms of production in terms of how different instruments work with each other to the point that you don't really feel them being different instruments like the percussive parts enhanced by the palm muted guitar it's really it's really an ensemble that's playing this how do you feel
0: yeah this one is really cool I really like it it so this is you know one of the tracks that leans the most into kind of uh, you know the eastern, indian arabic i am not educated mm-hmm. enough to know exactly what uh what influence this particular song is in but it is one of the songs that is leaning the most into that but at the same time it doesn't feel uh you know gimmicky or inauthentic which i think is an accomplishment whenever you're dealing with uh you know different kinds of uh, world music styles like that And there's a lot of, I mean, like, the guitar is so central to this song, I think. And there's a lot of really cool guitar tones that Martin's using. A lot of which I feel Mm -hmm. like he's never really used before. A lot of them sound quite new for him, uh, the way that he's using guitar in this track.
1: Yeah, the guitar in the chorus or bridge, whatever you, you want to call that, the No Gold of Fools, etc., there's a guitar that's following what the strings are playing, or vice versa, the, str- the string the strings and the guitar are playing the same the same motif. Dun, 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 dun. And the guitar is kind of in the background to the strings, but then on the last line the strings cut out and double-tracked guitars appear who kind of reply to these to these first three lines mm. in a different key. In a different well key center. And that's such a sonically brilliant moment, and the way the the timbre of the guitar works with, with the strings, I think throughout the entire album, they've really I think found a combination. They found a, a production I don't know a production technique, a mixing technique where the sounds of of the keyboards and the guitars complement each other so well yeah. that it really feels like ensemble playing. That none of these parts is more important than the other but they're they all combine to to a whole while on the previous albums we've been kind of listening and saying that these keyboards sound really 80s because they they stuck out yeah they felt like here's a keyboard part here even though some of the keyboard sounds do give us a kind of a 90s impression they are still mixed together with with the rest of the band so well that it doesn't really... you don't really notice them as being separate from, from everything else, if, if you know what I mean, if I'm making sense. Maybe I'm just so used to this album that it kind of imprinted on me.
0: I was gonna mention the keys because the degree to which they're used for atmosphere mm-hmm. on this song and other songs on this album is kind of interesting and i feel like it's kind of in a way that hasn't really been done before at least to this degree on Toll songs it, it, there's a lot of songs on this album where it feels like the main job of the keyboards is to provide atmosphere you know not necessarily to play melodies or play chords or that kind of thing and mm-hmm. this is one of those songs and like you said the key sounds haven't aged great but i mean i think they've aged better than some of the 80s ones mm-hmm. so it's, it's it's pretty interesting i think uh some of that has actually continued on dot com even Uh, To a certain Mm -hmm. degree The way that the keys are used for atmosphere Maybe that was just an Andrew Giddings thing I don't know
1: I I think it was Yeah. Yeah. I think it was one one of the things that he enjoyed doing The bass is slightly slappy I think I've noticed in a couple couple of places But there's not too much high end on it So you you don't really notice that it's slap It's just kind of a choice of attack But it, 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 it does have I think A couple of slap bass moments The lyrics on this one what I wrote down was mildly erotic and, dare I say, slightly BDSM. Uh, however, this song has no, like, no hint anymore of this self-conscious, uncomfortable sexual tension that Ian has been putting into, into some of the songs that I've been criticizing. Uh, so we're, we're past that. Yeah. We're mm-hmm. into a better songwriting territory. Uh, this one also has a, a bit of the kaleidoscopic approach feels like Uh, but like this one forgotten rooms dark catacombs all of those but this here is very cinematic we get flashes of different things and places coming out of the dark and there's a reason for for that because as per the song they all come back to you it's a song about flashes of memory so this approach is necessary and is opposite we're supposed to be like piecing the story together Mm-hmm. Yeah. From these separate images, like we've, we've got no crock of glittering prices, no sharply worded telegram, no excuses for the ward weary. These are—I don't have a better word for it. These are flashes, mm-hmm. and they come across as such.
0: Yeah, I agree. A lot of effort put into the drums and the percussion part that, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know the word for what this what this is, if this is a specific instrument or technique or something, but you know the sound of something kind of being like slapped on the floor <laughs> is kind of what it sounds like. Uh-huh. Uh I don't know what that is, but it's uh, something that you hear in kind of uh, ethnic music or however you want to put that.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I can like put a specific instrument to that sound in my mind, but...
0: Yeah, something which you usually hear in Indian or Arabic music, I think. Mm-hmm should uh, is it supposed
1: to be an imitation of the sound of the whip
0: it think? sounds like a whip yeah mhm track 3 out of the noise
2: to the curbstone staring frozen at the stop sign too see that crazy
0: i love this song i think this is one of the best tracks on the album and it's really interesting because there's things happening on this track that i don't feel like the band have ever really done before uh-huh. there's a certain there's a very like kind of jazzy funk light sound to this song and especially with martin i feel like martin is playing parts on here that he's never really played before on Toll material uh-huh. it's a, you know a lot of like really funky jazz guitar parts and you know not just the songwriting itself but i think this song is mixed really really well it comes across really clear and uh, especially the bass sounds really great it sounds very punchy and uh, and we're really in the middle of the mix as opposed to being buried under it or that kind of thing
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah because well it's it's a very groove based song yeah yeah so we are up to the to the high energy moments mm-hmm. being brought here for from the understate slightly understated title track the intro it feels rhythmically confusing uh like Like, there's many songs that begin in such a way where you don't really know where the one is. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of famous examples, like the Beatles' Drive My Car. Mm -hmm. And I actually took the time to just cut the song up and uh, superimpose parts of it onto one another and see that what they're playing in the intro is no different to what they're playing when the drums actually give us the point of reference further down but i still can't hear it the same way as when the dr- when the drums cue in do you know what i mean yeah i know it's, what you mean
0: it, it's it's quite confusing and it's great i really like the intro i think just because it's a very percussive, rhythmic intro you know it's mm-hmm. very much uh, it's an intro that you could have written on drums i think uh-huh it wouldn't surprise me if that's how that intro came about and that kind of thing
1: Yeah, lots of pauses in it but like, sort of filingdale filingdale flyer situation yeah where, where you don't really know where you are until you've got the beat. There's another rhythmic, interesting rhythmic thing in this song. I'm talking about the choruses, I'm talking about uh, the way the choruses begin on the first line, the, the line old dog of experience. I noticed that Ian sings this line in a different way every chorus. <laughs> hmm. There's three choruses and on the, on the first one the word dog lands on the one, so, it goes old dog of experience and in the second chorus, the, w- the word dog uh, lands after the one. So, the one lands squarely between the two, between old and dog. Old, dog and the third chorus, the old mutt of experience is the hybrid of the two because the word old is kind of earlier, like in the first chorus and mutt is after the one, like in the second chorus three different lines
0: yeah I can hear that, that you pointed yeah,
1: at. yeah again I just cut the, cut them up and overlaid them one on top of the other and you can really hear how how it comes back to a synchronized uh, line on the on the ripping through the black and yellow caps
0: mm-hmm. there's also some kind of John Evans-esque uh, Hammond organ sounds going on like mm-hmm. an, an organ stabs and that
1: kind of thing yeah in terms of lyrics I don't think there's much, you know, hidden depths in this song. It's, it's a song about a dog, which is, again, which is brilliant. I think it's a, a great moment in Ian's songwriting, where he writes about various characters. And this time, this is not even a human. Uh, mm-hmm. like, we've had that before. Like We've had songs about mice and songs about horses, and now this is a song about a dog. The line, "Some towns I know he could end up in a restaurant feels to me like a bit of a callback to the slightly questionable bits from uh, thick-as-a-brick newspaper, mm. where, where there's a story about a couple who had the, their dog cooked and served for them
2: <laughs>
1: on holiday. But yeah, very cinematic lyric. Also I love the line, works to a discipline of ritual undertakings.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the one that, I mean, I knew I liked the song before, but I think this was mm-hmm. the one that on my most recent you know, listen to this album for the podcast this is the one that really stuck out to me the most as being uh, uh-huh. something I'm definitely going to be coming back to in the next couple of weeks
1: it's energetic and it, it's also uh, mid- midway it's modulated upwards but it's done very tastefully you don't really notice it happening it's not like on the nose mm. but it just injects a little bit of, of energy into it track 4 This Free Will
2: <laughs> It's Time coming, Long time the
1: first hint of uh, Andrew Giddings' oboe samples on yeah. this one, <laughs> D- delightful. I really love how they sound. And I mean, again, about the, uh, the ensemble playing, the guitar and the oboe com- combine so well together. Su- such different sounds, it sounds from such different worlds, if you will,
0: but it just works. I had the total opposite (laughs) Uh (laughs) opinion on the horn sound. The horn really... I don't have a lot to say on this one, I mean, to begin with. It it wasn't one that really stuck with me that much, but the horn sound really kind of took me out of it. Because... Really? um, Not just the horns, but the string sound as well. It almost... it sounds kind of harsh and almost approaching atonal to me at points.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know. I I will disagree, because some of the string sounds can, you know, sound synthetic and can sound unnatural. I think... The oboe and the the clarinet in some other songs are, they feel like the best samples they they could come up with, uh, the the best what was available at the time. And they really sound great, I think. And just, they contribute to the overall sound, to the
0: overall timbre of the band. It's funny, I feel like there's something with an oboe in the 90s, (laughs) like a midi oboe. I feel like you can hear that in so many different places. on so many different things yeah. <laughs> from that time period.
1: Yeah, it could have been you know, a fashionable sound at yeah. the time. There's a moment uh, with the strings. Is it the strings or something else that's kind of brought in and silenced? Probably in reverse, maybe. Uh, the moment before the line sharp points in an black sky. You don't, you don't really notice it, if not specifically paying attention to what's happening in the background. But it's, it's again, a kind of production and derangement moment that works so well with this song. This is the one where we don't know who played the bass. Yeah. And on the bridge, uh, you can hear some really great bass lines underneath.
0: My guess is that it was Ian, but who knows?
1: Yeah, he's not credited with that, but uh, it feels like he's stopped writing down everything he did on an album mm-hmm. in the credits, could be. If it was Ian, I mean, kudos to him. <laughs> it's great part. So they're switching to a 6-4 in the outro. Again, a kind of a progressive moment, giving it a bit of development at the end.
0: Yeah, I I was surprised on a lot of this album, how progressive a lot of it was. And I feel like I've said that about a lot of uh, recent Tull albums, but (laughs) uh, I I think just because I haven't heard them in a long time, but I think part of me thought that the progressive side of Tull had kind of declined a bit as they uh, got on but i mean i think it really was still alive in uh, so many of these later uh, these later albums
2: yeah
1: do you have any observations about the lyrics on this one
0: no i don't have a lot on this one i think the title of this free will is interesting just to see them tackling mm-hmm. a subject like free will but it's not one that stuck out to me much
1: yeah i think stuart wood covered it recently uh. on his channel and he said that his interpretation of it was that is this is a song about like destiny or stocks star- Possibly almost star-crossed lovers mm-hmm. who keep meeting throughout th- throughout their life, throughout different situations, and putting the free will in question because through that, like, do we decide who we fall in love with? Do we decide who who we get to be together with, or is it is it pre-written? So this situation is making the protagonist question their free will. Mm-hmm. I don't have much commentary on the lyrics, except for the thing I I really like it. I think great great lyric. I saw some on so, some of the listener feedback. I noticed about this album. Some people complained about the vocals on this one. I don't know. I don't have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. I'm acknowledging that not everyone is as much of a fan of Roots to Branches as I am, but. I'm not getting convinced by them.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll be interested to see what people think when we put this episode out. Yeah. My guess is that most people like this album, but we'll see if I'm wrong. Track five, Valley.
2: Wake hard in the morning. See the young girl milking. Stream rushing by on a bed of stone.
0: So this is the track I mentioned that I think this is one of the best tall songs since the 70s. What do you think?
1: Wow. <laughs> I think... I don't know about the best all song I, I, I don't think it's a bad song I, I, I really like it I think the place probably it was probably the cassette track, li- track listing was a disservice to it because it came later it came on site to after yeah. beside myself and I remember kind of every time losing focus when listening to it like not noticing it properly so maybe maybe it was a choice of which song appeared here that you paid more attention to
0: yeah I, gu- I guess to be honest like I mean this was a song I liked before we ever started doing this podcast but when uh-huh. I listened to the album again recently I think out of the noise actually may have clipped this one a little bit <laughs> for me for my uh-huh. enjoyment Uh but I think that the main acoustic melody of this song ranks up there with some of the finest Ian Anderson acoustic guitar parts. And I think mm-hmm. it's it's a very rare moment in kind of modern Tull, like 90s, 2000s Tull Ian Anderson, where you could see this song coming straight out of 70s Tull. I think it would have fit perfectly um, back with a lot of that older material.
1: Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. The intro flute line is actually aqualung, but without the first note.
0: I never knew that. <laughs> definitely didn't notice well, it's that. Not, well, uh, I never knew that either. I
1: just I listened to it, played it and noticed, hey, it's just doing... And if, if you just clip the first note of aqualung and, well, transpose it, this one's an E. But, yeah. <laughs> but However... Uh, while Aqualung is a blues line, melodically, it's based on the on the blues scale. This one, in, in this one, the dissonant note, the tritone, is interpreted as harmonic minor and not as blues because we, we can hear that developing further. Uh, in this, at the start, I think I compared a few lines by Martin on one of the previous albums as sounding a little bit like David Gilmore, mm. and uh, this is where I'm also draw- drawing that, that comparison and with a few Gilmoury lines at the, at the very beginning.
0: Yeah, I love that. The delayed guitar in the mm-hmm. back. It sounds yeah. wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bass.
1: This is where Dave Pegg is playing bass. And it feels to me like an acoustic double bass. Mm. I didn't really get that straight away. I listened to that. At first, the w- the way it was mixed, I thought, was the, is that like key bass? Is that double uh, double bass samples on, on a keyboard? But no, it's very clearly a, a human being playing an acoustic instrument. It's just mixed. It's mic'd possibly with a lot of low end mm-hmm. and it's mixed the same way. On the guitar solo, it's kind of the bass tone changes in a way, but I followed it as I listened, and it doesn't feel like the instrument had changed. I think they probably gave it a little bit of a different treatment on the mixing board or overdriven it a little bit, maybe, because it's as it's accompanying the guitar solo, it doesn't feel like a double bass anymore. But then it does again, and if I listen to it closely, if I follow the lines, it doesn't feel like there's a switch between a bass and a bass guitar. Mm-hmm. so that that's really interesting
0: So this song, even though I was praising it a lot and I, I love it, there's it's not really perfect for me mm-hmm. and I think the intro is actually one of those things about it I'm not a huge fan of I kind of think the intro wasn't really necessary for a song like this mm-hmm. um, especially because of how disconnected it feels to what comes immediately after it where you have the acoustic part coming in and um, it kind of bothers me especially because I think the sound on I guess this whole album is it's very Trebly <laughs> You know what I mean. Uh-huh. So uh, there's lots of like very high stabs with uh, crash cymbals and things on the intro, which uh, uh-huh. sound extremely trebly in a way that's kind of unpleasant to me, at least.
1: Yeah, there's there's another th- song where I noticed that the the cymbals were had a bit of too much high end on yeah. them.
0: Uh-huh. And so the um the key sound that also kind of comes in to back up that main guitar melody. This is a good example of a key sound like we've talking about, where it's very overbearing and it's quite cheesy and like aged by today's standards. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't really think it takes away that much, and maybe I'm being selective in applying that label of you know cheesy key sounds. But sometimes it you know the cheese is what you want. <laughs> sometimes it works pretty well and it's kind of charming, and then other times it uh, kind of backfires. And I think this is an example where mm-hmm. it works pretty well.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I don't have many comments about the lyrics on this one. This is kind of a picture of neighboring tribes, right? And f- feuds between neighboring vi- villages. Yeah. And I like how, well, I, I'm saying I don't have much com- commentary, but I like how sort of where we are, the point of view, we're looking at this from, comes across as you know slightly self-important, slightly too self-important. Mm-hmm. Like the the people of the village that we're in they're saying, we've got snowmelt, sweet water, they've got that valley road that they made. Yeah. And it feels like like the, the valley road is a better achievement, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Than the, just the natural resource that the, these people are taking advantage of. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm unsure about the verse, the Moses verse, because, I don't know how it connects to, to the rest of the story in a song. It, 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 it clearly so, sort of outlines the, the moral codes that the, these people have and that they are supposed to be following. But I don't think it's, uh, it's it's not really explored. Yeah. So, yeah, this album clearly has a theme up to a point, probably. But it has a th- one of the themes is uh, religion and ideas and traditions if you will and this is a song that's squarely focused on on traditions and how people see themselves within within those traditions.
0: Yeah. My only thing on the lyrics so I mean this is kind of a long story because like this is a pretty long song and it it, it the mm-hmm. song kind of goes on a journey you know it's one of those songs that has big ups and downs and that kind of thing which is actually something I don't like that much about it honestly I would I would have kind of preferred if it had just been kind of scaled down into more of like a a more traditional acoustic song I guess instead of trying to kind of be like a big epic song Uh-huh But maybe that's suitable for a song called Valley. They kind of have peaks and valleys and that kind of thing. But anyway, the only thing I had to say in the lyrics was just that the beginning of this song, both musically and lyrically, it reminds me a lot of like Thick as a Brick, like 1972-era Toll. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think especially when you have the lyrics describing the valley with the milking girl and all that kind of thing, that immediately makes me think Mm -hmm. of Thick as a Brick. Mm -hmm.
1: The cattle quite the grazing. Yeah, exactly. That
0: that exact verse, yeah. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, But there are parts, especially kind of later on, in this song where he kind of goes back to like the catfish rising voice if you know what I mean uh-huh which is kind of like a rarity of th-
1: that mountain
0: yeah exactly just kind of a rarity on this album I guess
1: yeah I know and possibly at uh, this verse kind of sticks out to me as I I don't know how how it's supposed to connect to the rest of the song mm-hmm.
0: and there's definite 90s drums later on on this song mm-hmm. with the reverb
1: track six dangerous veils
2: I'm not- Dangerous fails, though you might age me
1: just again, I've stopped commenting on the Phrygian mode because we have it in pretty, pretty much every song, but we've got it again. The, the intro, the, the intro flute line actually has the same notes as Valley, so it kind of feels like a continuation of that. Feels connected to, to the previous song in, in this way. The song is a straight 4-4, but I think rhythmically made very exciting by by the drum parts and the rest of the instruments. Like, jazzy moments in it. And, I don't know, an exciting song. What do you think?
0: Yeah, the th- first thing that immediately stuck out to me was the really complicated drum part. Mm-hmm. Um, which is obviously that caught my ear immediately as a drummer trying to figure out what's sure. going on. So that was, that was kind of cool to hear, and I don't have a ton on this song, but I, I thought the chorus is nice. You know, there's this song doesn't do a lot for me, but the, I mm-hmm. thought it's, it's generally pretty nice, and there's a lot of very interesting parts in it. I think the part that made me kind of stop in my tracks the most is towards the end. I guess it's... I don't know if it's quite the outro, but it's in kind of the later half of the song. Uh-huh. There's a part where some kind of jazz standard chords come in, and it it literally made me pause the album as i was listening cuz it was one of those feelings i got where i immediately recognized that song but i couldn't uh-huh. i just couldn't place what it was and I'm still not entirely sure. It like one of those moments where it rem- you it reminds you of a song, but you just can't place it. Uh-huh. And part of me wants to wonder if I'm thinking of like Cantaloupe Island, if that's like the chords I'm thinking of, but I'm I can't really place it. Uh huh.
1: I don't I don't think I have that reaction to it. I don't, I don't think I'm recognizing something something in in there. But yeah, there's there's a jazzy moment in there. I like uh, the last verse. Where where we have uh, instruments coming in one after the other.
0: Yeah, the, uh, it almost like it almost gets like math rocky. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got you've got the flute and then then the little guiro line that goes just quick uh, quick the p- p- percussive sound. Then the toms very very quietly in the background. Then the keys, then the guitar, and then a snare line. Uh, a snare probably a roll, right, or just just a straight. Snare build-up mm-hmm. that builds up to, to 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 the last verse, really great. And the outro, uh, the feels like to me one of the heaviest moments in tall music. Mm, yeah, and quite funky and quite heavy, and and with the double bass pedal at the end.
0: There's also the part. I mean, this is a very eclectic song. There's a part even earlier where they go back into kind of that like jazz standard passage. Mm-hmm. Um, complete with like a walking bass line and everything, which I wonder if that yeah. was like Steve Bailey's contribution. I guess he was used to that kind of thing being kind of the player that he was.
1: Yeah, it must have been. This is the one where I was, I think, the most confused with the lyrics. So yeah, feel it's probably a well camouflaged horny song, another one. <laughs> but again, we're we're past the uncomfortable Ian Anderson of the late '80s. But still, there's erotic undertones in, in this in, in here and. I'm questioning whether the line I'm not inviting in a stiff reaction is supposed to be a double and
2: mm-hmm.
0: I didn't read the lyrics for this one, but he, he actually does a pretty good job with wordplay I think in a lot of these later songs. and mm-hmm. You know, I, .com I think shares a lot of the same kind of like world music influences as this album, from what I remember. And in that way, I, th- I really like how kind of playful he is with some of the titles in trying to you know, draw upon those influences. Mm -hmm. So with things like Dangerous Veils, which at least for me kind of, you know, makes me think of like an exotic, you know, Middle Eastern Indian locale (laughs) is kind of Mm -hmm. what, what that title makes me think of. And I think I think he does a good job at creating those kinds of titles, I guess. Yeah. Track seven beside myself
2: I'm beside myself. I'm so this isn't
0: one that, uh, again, I don't have a lot on this one, but the, the main thing I remember about how I discovered the song was actually from the Montro DVD. So the 2003 uh-huh. Montro DVD, they played this song, I remember. And it's kind of always stuck with me from that for whatever reason. And I think it's nice. It's you know somewhat ballady, I think. A mm-hmm. uh, Ballady. And I think it's actually a pretty good song for Ian's voice. I think he uh, actually has a pretty good vocal performance on this one. What do you think?
1: Yeah, this one is actually in G minor, which is like an an older key for for Ian, which is supposed to be too high for him at this point, but I think he does a good job. Did you notice that in the drum part, the kick drum arrives later than the one? (laughs)
0: It's, no, I didn't.
1: It's not a, a one-drop, it's not like in reggae when you've got the, the, the kick
0: drum on the three.
1: Uh, the kick plays on the end of the one, so it's really syncopated.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember, I don't know if this is related, but I remember reading an interview with Ian where he was uh, talking about drummers and tall drummers and that kind of thing. Uh And he mentioned how Doan Perry has been measured as being like some really specific time, like 0.3 seconds ahead of a metronome. (laughs) That's kind of what his standard playing is like, and that, you know, every drummer has a different setting that they're used to when it comes to playing on time and that kind of thing. Uh So it kind of made me think of that. (laughs)
1: That's interesting, but yeah, here he is later.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm,
1: I'm not saying that the beat, the beat is... Well, we, we don't know where the metronome is, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's not there anymore. But yeah, he's just interpreting the beat in a very interesting oh, way. He's, he's counting the one just with the hi-hat. Not throughout the song. The, there's moments on it where, where the rhythm is more straight. Mm. But there's there's a few really syncopated parts. I have, I have an observation about this one musically, but I would like to first go into the lyrics. He's playing here with the literal meaning of beside myself, instead of being overcome with feeling. What he's describing here, I think, is talking about being an observer within himself being two people the one that reacts and the one that watches that duality which one of me do you run to this in the in the mind in the consciousness of of a person there's two parts well at least two parts the one that's more immediate and the one that is observing what is happening and he in this one he senses these feelings these reactions to the tragedies to the people around him. Uh, and he acknowledges these feelings, but it's not himself that is overcome with. And musically, there's a thing which is well tenuous. You can say you can say I'm making this up. I probably am. the The song is uh, the harmony on the song in the song is based around well, very heavily based around two chords. It's based around G minor and C major seven. And the interesting thing about these two chords, uh, th- they appear in, in the chorus. They appear in the in the opening lines of the verse. Is that these are the same chord but with a different root note. So if you, if you do this on a keyboard, if you play a G minor in the right hand and then just play a G in the left hand in the bass, then you have a G minor chord. If you keep the same chord in the right hand and play a C in the left, you've got a C major 7. There's a duality. There's a different... It's the same sound being recontextualized into acquiring a different meaning. It's the two people within one person. The same chord is, it sounds differently depending on what note we are looking at it from. And I think this musical metaphor uh, sort of represents what is going on in the song. And it is, I'm sure that no one thought about this when writing this song, neither Ian or Andy or anyone else, but the the ambiguity in the harmony and the the melodic lines in in relation to the chords it contributes to to the feeling of ambiguity of the self which ian is describing so that's my armchair musicologist take on what Beside Myself is about.
0: You mentioned the lyrics of this song. I seem to remember hearing or reading or something from Ian a long time ago that this song is actually about uh, child prostitution in India. Mm-hmm. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember where I heard that, but it was an interview or something.
1: Well, it's uh, it's quite evident from, from the lyrics, you know, uh, I'll wish you up a silver train to carry you to school, bring you home again, strip off that work paint. Okay. and put a cleaner face on. He's talking about, uh, talking about a woman who's wearing makeup for work. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, but it is also about a person reacting to that and the, the feeling of that. How do you let, not let yourself be overcome with, with emotion, be overcome with compassion, if you will? Mm-hmm. I'm beside myself. Which one of me do you run to? So there's layers in this one. Yeah. <laughs> Track eight, Wounded Old and Treacherous. This is very likely one of my favorite songs on the album. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I was, again, as I was researching what people think, well, I wasn't researching what people think, I was researching what, whether people had ideas about the meaning, uh, specific meanings in the song Dangerous Veils, but I haven't found that. I saw someone refer to this song as embarrassing, and no, <laughs> this is a wonderful song. I, I really love it. I really love the 7-8 the flute line. One of the things about it, uh, this is not my idea at the outset. I shared this song with someone and they said it reminded them of Frank Zappa. And I immediately s- saw what they mean. Yeah. Uh, they didn't point out a specific song, but uh, over time, I think one of the song- songs I can draw a direct comparison to is Cosmic Debris by Frank Zappa from the album Apostrophe. Uh, that sort of unhurried almost spoken word delivery of the verse contrasting with the higher energy melodic chorus is one of the things that frank zappa did a lot and one of the things i noticed this time as i was listening to it there's a keyboard line after the the first chorus after the little melodic insert the little melodic bridge after the first chorus, though it ends on that. It's a key line that doesn't appear elsewhere on the song, it's, it's a one-off. I'm not sure what the sound is supposed to be, what kind of instrument sample that is. It's a little bit percussive, it's not a straightforward marimba keyboard, keyboard marimba, sampled marimba, it's something else. But that line immediately put me in mind of uh, Ruth Underwood, the, key, the uh, mallet player, for Frank Zappa, the famous marimba and other malleted instruments player, who was one of the stars of Frank Zappa's live band. Uh, so again, I'm not sure they were directly referencing Zappa, but something about that song made them made Andy play that line. If you know what I mean? And I think th- it was kind of just channeling the spirit of Frank at that point.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I've I've never really been. Well, I've never really tried to get into Zappa, really, which I think uh-huh. is kind of surprising for a lot of Tull fans because I know a lot of Tull fans, there's a big overlap between Tull fans and Zappa fans, I think. But I know enough about Zappa to know what his style is like, and I, I agree that this is kind of in that wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. This song really surprised me when I listened to this album. Just I'm sure I've heard this before, but it's been a while, but it, it really stuck out to me. Um, the central melody is so groovy. On this Uh one it's really amazing and i love how they mess with it kind of over time as it comes back and goes away so there's kind of a part later on where there's this interplay between the snare and that central flute melody and it just sounds so great the way that it sounds very addicting the way that they um, meld those two together
1: yeah uh, the, there's uh, this melody comes in twice as a sort of solo throughout the song, and in the middle there's the snare full fo- follows it and they are playing a seven together and the second time it does that, uh, they, they do that they superimpose this seven eight flute line over a straight four four in the drums mm-hmm. and the flute kind of is playing circles around it and r- repeating the the, the theme until it kind of breaks out the 7-8 into, into a solo. Mm-hmm. into breaks out of repeating that, that melody into improvising, into soloing. And that, that is a fantastic moment. I've always absolutely
0: loved that. Yeah. And th- that melody, it's, it's very like, I don't know how else to say this, but it's really emblematic of the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense, but just the way that melody sounds, it sounds like the 90s to me. Really? And I don't know what other way
1: I can put Not, that. not just the 90s tall, just the, the 90s No, just the period. 90s period.
0: Like, wow. Just something about the way that, that the, the notes that were chosen for that melody, it, it represents the 90s to me, mm-hmm. the mid to late 90s specifically. I, I don't know if I can really explain why, though. It just it just feels that way to me.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. I've never thought about it like that.
0: I, and one, one more 90s thing on this song I'll mention, too, is... So the piano sound, the piano that kind of like lazily stabs in and out when Ian is doing yeah. that little talking thing, I don't know if it's exactly this same sound but it's very similar it's really similar to like the classic 90s house sound uh-huh. so i'm a huge fan of house music it's one of my favorite genres in the world and when you listen to you know classic house like golden age house of the 80s and 90s they have this incredible piano sound uh-huh. This just really bright really this really kind of hot piano sound that really sticks in your mind and it's a very similar sound to what is being played here.
1: Yeah, I don't know what, what kind of electric piano that is. I'm, mm. I'm not sure. I'm sure some of our commenters will enlighten us. I, I, I hope so. It kind of sort of reminds me of a Yamaha electric piano, but what do I know? I really can't comment with any kind of expertise. Uh, this is the one where the cymbals fe- felt to me extra jangly. Oh yeah! In the later part of the song, again, uh, Martin is playing some pinch harmonics on the guitar solo, but they're again in here quite tasteful. They're not overwhelming. And it's not leaning into them, and a few other things. There's a very quiet organ line in the background of the first verse and of the verse that goes uh, a walk on the quiet side. So both times, it's barely audible. It's not. It's not forward, but. There's a few very, very tasty organ lines. In, the, in terms of lyrics, it has a bit of a callback to Bungle in the Jungle. In my mind, at least. It's a little cryptic. It may be referencing, again, films or literature that I'm not aware of, but it kind of gives me the vibe of the, sort of a serenade of the concrete jungle, with a bit of a film noir, hard-boiled main character strolling through that and as i was thinking about that like i talked about one of the songs on catfish rising having a to me a book a fantasy book vibe if anyone i don't know if you read because you're not much into fantasy i i think you you probably haven't if anyone has read the dresden files by jim butcher it's a series of urban fantasy novels about a magician detective this song suddenly felt to me like this could be the main theme to the Dresden Files because it, it, it has that kind of atmosphere to it
0: yeah it's a really weird song it's not really a song I would expect Tull to make but I think it's cool it has this kind of weird swagger to it that Tull has not really mm-hmm. done before
1: yeah I was a little bit afraid that you wouldn't, you wouldn't like it
0: <laughs> no it's cool I mean I think that the main melody I mean whatever else happens in the song I think that's an amazing melody and I really love mm-hmm. listening to it yeah, it's also quite, quite
1: long. Yeah, it is. And I, I think I was expecting you to say, yeah, it's fine, if only it were a little bit shorter.
0: <laughs> well, nothing, none of the long songs on here are too offensive to me. That was actually something uh-huh. that I was thinking about, honestly, was there was a couple songs on here where I was trying to think, you know, would I prefer that this be shorter? And I I didn't really come to a conclusion uh, where uh-huh. I really thought that, except maybe Valley, just because I, I kind of wish that Valley was a different kind of song than it ended up being. But, uh, uh-huh. you know, whatever. Track nine at last forever.
2: I didn't promise to stay the place. Not in this lifetime babe but we'll cling together Some kind So
0: this is heaven. another kind of older ballad type song, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. But the thing that is so interesting is that you know, we've talked about the tired hotel ballads. of the past couple albums, of which I do think that there are some on this album, particularly in this kind of last stretch of tracks on the second side. However, I feel like there's a difference this time, and maybe it's just me, but I feel like the old ballad songs on this album have so much more effort put into them than the past Mm -hmm. couple of albums. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I will agree. Well, this one doesn't feel like, like a tired hotel type thing at all. Because it it explores a completely different feeling. Uh, it's very poignant. It's again we ha- we have these oboe samples and clarinet, which we, we've established that you don't like a lot, but again I, I think they work really well here. There's a very you know straightforward kind of emotional manipulation at the beginning, where there's a major to minor switch in the uh, in, in this oboe melody, but it's again it's very. It, it's not out of place it's it, it its do- does what it is supposed to be doing because this song is exploring death. this song is exploring the the feeling of leaving pe- people behind and of the feeling of being left behind when someone dies and yeah I, I don't really have a lot to explain here.
0: I do think this song would be a lot better with real strings and real horns. Mm-hmm. I think it kind of drags it down for me, kind of the syntheticness of it.
1: Oh, you know, everything could be better with real strings and real horns instead of samples, but that's what they had. I like the when the strings come in, the the, the last notes that they arrive on are so d- delightfully thick. They have so, so much low end in them and just sound very powerful. Rhythmically, they do very nice work with 3-4 around the middle of the song and this is steve bailey is it on bass? i think Mm -hmm. he's playing a fretless sounds to me
0: some of the acoustic guitar work on this song reminded me a lot of jacqueline it sounded very Uh reminiscent of that
1: yeah i think i know what you mean again not not much to comment on about about the lyrics because it's just it's all there and it's what i said it's an exploration of death and life that continues when people Walk out of our lives.
0: Yeah, this is one of the more low-key tracks on the album. I'd say mm-hmm.
1: it's quite well emotionally. It's quite heavy to listen to. Mm. So it's not it's not a light-hearted sort of listen, listen and forget ballad. It's it has an impact, and I think it's delivered quite well. Track ten, stuck in the August rain.
2: I'm still stuck in the August rain stuck out in the clown burst once again
1: i think uh in the album track listing a welcome song after it last forever sort of an enough about death <laughs> uh this is probably the poppiest track on the album but i do enjoy it on this last stretch of songs we are well out of the eastern influences it feels like yeah it doesn't seem like there's uh, there's any of that anymore even beginning with probably Wounded Old and Treacherous. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I agree. That one had had a few Phrygian moments in it, but since the last three tracks, completely free of that, and just, I think it kind of works as a palate cleanser, Mm -hmm. just something a little bit different to finish off. This one, very cleverly, it modulates upwards twice throughout the song, there's three verses, and each verse is a whole tone up from the previous one and you don't really notice it when the, when, when they do it. it It just again it's so cleverly done it's, it's done differently both times so it doesn't seem like they're repeating that like they're retracing their own steps mm. throughout the song and the the, fir- the first time they do that they just say the chord they landed on they stay on it and sort of pretend it's it's the new is the new center, and the second time they do it, it's a noticeable jump, but it's in the middle of an instrumental section, so you don't really notice that they they're establishing a new center for the for, for the upcoming verse. A new moment musically in terms of keyboards, there's a brass patch <laughs> that's appearing. Yeah. Again, yes, it's not real brass. It would have been better if it were real brass, but I think it's nice. I think it gives it, it gives it a good sort of a fresh fresh sound compared to the previous songs
0: a lot of my opinions on this song are kind of similar to both of the previous song and the next song (laughs) to be honest Uh but uh, i feel like it's a slow moving ballad but i still feel like there's more life here than in the past Uh couple of albums that tried to do similar songs like this and you know i think a lot of the melodies here are not bad i I don't think this is an offensive song by any means Uh i think it might have been a better song if ian's voice was stronger because uh-huh. i think like i mentioned i think this was kind of where he was starting to go for stuff that was uh, a little difficult for him mm-hmm. but yeah i don't know I, I probably would never choose to listen to this out of my own free will but I'd, uh, i i don't think it's bad for what it's trying to be and I, I can't really fault it too much
1: it's got a pastoral sort of
0: yeah feel
1: to it like songs like wandering aloud mm-hmm. but it's, it has a slightly darker side. It, it, it pictures it pictures a pastoral moment, but the person who's experiencing it cannot be in that moment. Mm-hmm. In their head, they're somewhere different. They're stuck in the August train they're, they haven't they haven't processed some events in their life that keep haunting them.
2: Yeah
1: this is what what it feel, feels like single minded in my gloom. But this is where they. The song has a hopeful tone to it, so even though the person is stuck, they are. It it feels like they are getting over it. Yeah. In the context of the previous song, uh, you one may imagine that this is the death of a loved one that they are still they are still experiencing and re-experiencing. Yeah, I can see that.
0: Track 11, another Harry's Bar.
2: Another Harry's Bar
0: so i i really i kind of feel like this song is similar to the last one in the sense that Mm -hmm. i think this one and stuck in the august rain are actually fairly different from the rest of the album and it almost yeah i don't think i don't think this is the case but in a way they almost sound like they're from different sessions from the rest of the album but i I don't think that's what Mm -hmm. happened this this song particularly, it kind of reverts almost to Catfish Rising in a way. It kind of gives me... Yeah, that.
1: this is this is what I have <laughs> yeah. written down. It's maybe the closest to Catfish Rising.
0: Yeah. It kind of gives me a similar vibe. But I actually, I still think there's some nice musical parts in this one. Mm-hmm. But you know, when in the very beginning in Crest of a Nave, when I mentioned tired old hotel ballroom ballad, this was like the quintessential song I was thinking of when I thought of those uh-huh. kinds of songs. But... I don't know. I mean I, again I like I would never choose to listen to this but it I think it's you know it's really not that bad for what it is. I think it's it's not if you had a tier list of these kinds of uh, kind of old ballad songs I think it would it wouldn't be at the bottom I would say.
1: Yeah, it, it would definitely be up there with the Rocks on the Road, mm-hmm. I feel. Yeah, I agree that this is the closest to to the previous album as we get on Roots to Branches. It is a little bit similar to Stuck in the is Stuck in the August Train. Stuck in the August Rain is an epilogue, this is a postscript. Mm -hmm. And it feels to me a little bit like they had both of these songs and they couldn't choose which one would be the better ending. So they stuck, stuck, stuck them both on. And in this regard, they sort of feel, both of these songs together feel like a bit of a redundant ending. It could have been either one. And after Stock in the August Rain, this one is like, okay, maybe let's let's have a little more about death but in a fun way. <laughs> yeah. Dave Peck is on the double bass again. It gives it a more acoustic, more intimate probably sound, and the vocals are mixed in a more intimate way. They're closer to us than than in the previous song. Yeah. So that's what gives it an extra an epilogue after the epilogue, a postscript. But yeah, I don't I don't really I don't dislike it. Uh, the, the outro is nice. That they have a bit of a fake out ending, and and then the outro that picks you up in just the right way. Yeah. After the end, and there's a there's a great like a six eight polymetric line in the keys.
0: I haven't talked a lot about lyrics um, on this album, but this is one song where the lyrics are kind of interesting to me. Just because uh-huh. the subject of it is quite mysterious in a way that's kind of cool about this like bar that doesn't exist, <laughs> you know. Um, And I guess it's kind of a nostalgia song, you know, it's thinking back to a bar and a community that used to be, which is not anymore. Mm -hmm. And kind of the sadness of that, which I think is something that anybody can, who grows up, can uh, attest to as times change. And, you know, times are surely changing now in the year 2022. So Hmm. uh, it's kind of something that I think people can uh, relate to, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's like a legacy. It's like uh, there's a bar called Harris. But it's not the same Harris that it used to be, because yeah. Harry isn't around. But the, uh, still there only in the name and in the memories of those of, who remember him, pardon the tautology.
0: Yeah, and I think this is uh, this was a, something I had wanted to talk about on this podcast, and I guess this is the best place to deploy it. Uh-huh. And I don't know how much this will make sense to people, but I have this theory that the period around which you were born is... For every person, that's a very, like, you know, nostalgia-tinged period. You know, even though you weren't necessarily around to really remember things necessarily, you know, so... For example, to me, the late 90s, the early 2000s is like this magical time in history that will never be repeated. To me, like there's so many things that were happening at that period of time in history that were so innovative and unique and special that we will have never seen since then and we will never seen again. And to me, this song, uh, it kind of is about that feeling to me. And part of Mm -hmm. it is kind of complicated also for me because this album kind of came out like in that period, you know, like in the mid-90s, which to me was like a very... uh, It's like a special uh, period of time in a bottle that you'll never be able to get again. But I kind of suspect that everybody feels that way about whatever period of time they were born in. Um, So there's kind of a connection between this song and that kind of feeling to me, although I don't know if that's a stretch on my part.
1: Mm -hmm. No, I see what you mean. It's a song about memories. Yeah, and it's a song about something you're, you're not getting back, mm.
0: but you're still
1: getting it back in your mind.
0: Yeah, I think it's just the feeling of uh, remembering something and being the only person on Earth who re- really still has that memory, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but the the protagonist in this song latches onto this memory and uses it to, to drive them forward. will make this world turn, turn right, you know, this... The, Mm-hmm. what they have from the past will, will have help them move forward.
0: But it's a really surprising ending for an album like this, I feel like. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at where this album was on track one and where it is on track 11, it's <laughs> it's, it's a really different place. It's kind yeah, of interesting. It's,
1: be, it's been a journey.
0: Yeah. And I, I think part of, like, it's just because in the last several tracks, the whole ethnic world music thing is completely out the window. Like, it's it's nowhere to be found on a lot of the second half of the album.
1: Yeah, probably. Well, three tracks, at least, Mm -hmm. like I said, I think that this song is here because it's more hopeful than stuck in the August train. Mm -hmm. Like uh, either of these two songs could have been the last one. Yeah. And either of these songs could have been could have probably been omitted. I'm not saying I don't like them. I'm not saying I resent that they're both here. I, I love that they're both here. But sort of the feeling on how the album ends is a little ambiguous because it, to me it, it ends twice it ends on stuck in the august august train and yeah. it ends on another harris bar and harris bar is more hopeful and this, this is the, the feeling they chose they chose to end the album on
2: mm.
0: i have one last story to tell about this uh yeah. song which you go on yeah this is kind of uh this is like a personal thing but it's just something that this song always makes me think of you know you kind of had your story on slow marching band on broadsword about something uh-huh. personal to you that uh, was related to the song and i guess this is kind of mine so my best friend growing up he his parents owned a hotel and they still own a hotel but in a, in a different state and uh he, they would always have to take him to the hotel while they were working like during summer break and stuff like that and so he would just kind of like be hanging out in his parents hotel doing nothing all day And a lot of the time he would call me to come over to his hotel and just to to play games or whatever to keep him company. And uh, they had a restaurant in this hotel, and I don't remember the exact name, but I think it was Harry's Bar and Restaurant, or it was uh, Harry's Restaurant or something like that. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, but this restaurant was never open, ever. I have no idea what the deal was but uh his the parents would always stick him in this like empty abandoned restaurant in that side of the hotel. And so that's where I would always go to meet him. And so uh when I think of this song it kind of makes me think of that of I think of uh hours and hours spent with my friend as a kid in this uh you know suitably abandoned Harry's restaurant and bar which is uh mm-hmm. it kind of makes me think of this song. That's
1: cool. It's really cool. It's one of the things that this isn't what the song is about but it adds another dimension yeah. to it and it, <laughs> this is not what the, the the main character of the song is doing like having a drink <laughs> with a dog yeah but it's like like you could see that person there as you were as you were in that abandoned restaurant oh, I mean
0: yeah it's the same idea of like the abandoned mm-hmm. restaurant where you never see a soul uh-huh also uh, and just also coincidentally called Harry's or
1: maybe not coincidentally
0: yeah, the restaurant, you know, from a time period that you will never be able to access again, the same mm-hmm. type of feeling, yeah,
1: that's great, thank you for this story
0: so when in conclusion when we talk about this album, it's I actually kind of felt like this album was more difficult to talk about than I was expecting, I guess, but my general take on it is that I I agree that it's the best. I mean, it's certainly the best album of the 90s, in my opinion. But there's moments on this album that I think are really kind of highs that the band hadn't hit since, for me, it would be under wraps. For a normal Toll fan, it would probably be like you know, Broadsword or <laughs> earlier.
1: Yeah. As we've established, I've slightly come around on under wraps. Not, not to become a massive fan of it, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, now i can you know i can see what 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 they were doing but probably to me this is the most underrated jethro tell album this is one of the albums i like a lot and i don't think enough people do Mm. like you do with under wraps and you know i can't really i'm sure lots of people can't rank the albums in a once and for all in an order that, that that makes sense right you you can't really put them one after the other in terms of quality and in terms of how much you like them it changes and even on those uh, tier lists you know things that people make and that you and I may made as well uh, at one point these tiers, to me like when I look at them uh in my mind there's the albums on there start just bobbing up and down like these are not straight lines they are sitting on uh these are these lines are curved and they're moving yeah uh, be, depending on depending on the time of year depending on on the mood depending on w- the place I'm in psychologically at a given moment in life an album may will make more sense to me uh, I will m- enjoy it more than than another and then it'll change in. Uh, Th- then it will change in a year or or, or less mm-hmm. and this this one is, is is definitely up there it's not i don't think it can bob up and down so ferociously that it, that it can ever like out bob a passion play in my mind but it's it's absolutely up there with my most favorite Tal albums that come after passion play and thick as a brick it's it's together it can be on the same rung as benefit stormwatch minstrel in the gallery certainly it's certainly always as good as broader than the beast in my mind it's just sometimes it's in my mind it's better than the broader than the beast
0: the main thing that stuck out to me on this one is that i thought the first half was a lot better than the second do you feel that there's like a divide on this album for you
1: no no not at all it's different but it doesn't feel like that to me mm.
0: All of my favorite tracks on this one are from the first half, and all of my least favorite are, <laughs> are in the second half. Mm-hmm. I, I have great difficulty
1: picking least favorite tracks here. Mm-hmm. I can't really slide them so much. So what are yours?
0: Well, I have three clear-cut favorites, for sure. Okay, And that is Valley Out of the Noise and Rare and Precious Chain. Um, those Uh are the three songs that I would definitely go out of my way to listen to outside of the context of the album just kind of in my own listening and I've said this for the past couple albums I think but I don't really like to pick least favorites on this one because there's not anything Uh that is like you know immediately offensive to me but if I had to pick three I would say At Last Forever just because it doesn't do much for me Stuck in the August Rain even though I kind of like it it's uh, a little too low key I guess for me Uh and You know, I have another Harry's bar as my third one, but I feel kind of bad picking it. So, I'm looking through my notes (laughs) wanting to see if I want to (laughs) pick a different one instead. You don't uh, have to, you know? (laughs) I don't know. I might... maybe this Free Will instead of Harry's bar as my third least favorite. But uh, I I don't feel strongly on the least favorites again on this one.
1: It's extremely difficult for me to to pick uh, least favorites. And, and favorites as well, because, uh, well, I know Wounded, Old and Treacherous is probably my favorite one on the album, but it's not far ahead at all from, from your favorites, from Out of the Noise, from Rare and Precious Chain, from Dangerous Veils, mm-hmm. from Beside Myself. And I, I, so I won't, I can't pick three because Wounded, Old and Treacherous will definitely be in, in the three. but. Then it it will be a rotating cast of songs, and for for the least favorite, I don't I don't think it's possible for me to pick. I th- I thought I was going to pick another Harris Bar, just because well, it, just because of the redundancy, you know. Mm-hmm. Stuck in the August rain is the epilogue, and another Harris Bar is another epilogue, and which one? But you know, after after your story, I <laughs> I can't even <laughs> I can't pick it in, in good conscience. No, <laughs> so maybe maybe August rain, maybe it's a Tie between august rain and Harry's maybe but stuck in the in the August rain is also a great song i could, no, I will refuse to pick the, the least favorite
2: <laughs> song
0: we almost had this pretty we were always pretty aligned there
1: yeah but i i can't i can't pick at last forever as as my least favorite it's it, it's such a beautiful and emotional song
0: thanks everybody for listening we only have one album left in uh i guess you'd call the pre the pre-2022 discography um so we'll see you all in two weeks with dot com as we kind of close out the old discography see you cheers thanks